Hey Retro Gamers, grab your lanterns and spellbooks because today we're dusting off the cobwebs and diving deep into the dimly lit dungeons of gaming history. Before today's hyper-realistic graphics, we had worlds of words, and one of the most captivating of all was found within the fantastical realm created by Infocom in their most successful game, Zork. In today's episode, we'll be exploring the development of Zork and the rise and fall of its development studio, Infocom. So join us, fellow adventurers, as we unlock the secrets, solve the puzzles, and map out the fascinating history of Zork on today's trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 177th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, sometimes the people who created it. It can be about a, it can be about a gaming console and the technology that allowed it to happen. More often than not, it's also about the companies that make it all cool. Our stories bring everything together. Well, bringing you each story, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. Today, today, we are all going to look back at the creation of the text adventure game Zork and the rise and fall of its development studio, Infocom. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who, like the game in question, has an incredibly limited vocabulary. He's my brother, Rob Kasson. Rob, how you do? Good. You? Good. Good. Move on. Yes. So tell us, Rob, what are some of the highlights from this week in gaming history? Well, Dave, this is the week of January 14th, 2024, and there are some interesting things waiting for us. 40 years ago this week, in January of 1984, Tennis was released for the Famicom in Japan by Nintendo. Okay. And three years later, in January of 87, Nintendo released Zelda 2, The Adventures of Link, still one of the more unique games in the Zelda series. Did you ever play the second Zelda? I did not, no. I played Majora's Mask, Ocarina of Time. But, but never the second NES one? No, I did play the original, but not the second. I never played Adventures of Link. It's weird. Like like in hindsight, comparatively, it's weird, you know? So. Eh, that's I all. I don't know. I mean, it, it's just I didn't we didn't actually own it. You, I played the original on an emulator and I just don't remember if two was on it. Gotcha. 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 So, 25 years ago, Electronic Arts announced a recall on the PlayStation version of Tiger Woods 99. Someone found a bootleg episode of South Park on what would be normally unused space on the CD. <laughs> so it was invisible to the PlayStation, but could be accessed when you put the disc in a PC. And that was about 100,000 copies of the game. <laughs> that's awesome. That's that's some really bored, bored uh, intern in the company, you know? I mean, hey, had to spread the joy of South Park somehow. <laughs> that's I wonder if. Uh, I think episode? that was too early on for it to be the actual episode featuring Tiger Woods. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. But that's probably why they did that, knowing that that's funny. That's great. It's a good story. It is. It's 20 years ago on January 20th, 2004, Nintendo unveiled the Nintendo DS to the world. It wouldn't go on sale until November of that year, though. It was a lot of hype around that one. Like, damn straight. It was a thing was freaking sweet. I know there was a was lot of hype around huge. it. Shit. I still remember you had the uh, the Red Mario one. I did. That was my first one. I still have it. I'm not surprised. <laughs> 13 years ago in 2011, Little Big Planet 2 was released for the PlayStation 3. OK. And then 11 years ago in 2013, the Devil May Cry reboot which was developed by Ninja Theory, was released. Yeah, we love it. Yeah, oh, so much. And if you want to know about that, uh, we talked about it back in episode 20 before we did Straight History. So it's talking more about how the content of the game is aged. So if that interests you, go check it out. Episode 20. Yeah, you loved that one. Actually, I I actually, that was when I played games for episodes. I played that game for that episode for the first time. Yeah, and I replayed it, and, you know, it was great for comboing, but other than that, go listen to the episode. I didn't hate it, but I don't have the history with Devil May Cry the way you do, so. True that. And we can all celebrate the fifth anniversary of the Area Cooperation Economic Simulation North Korea, also known as ACES. ACES, huh? Yes. ACES is described as a teaching tool to train officials to assist North Korea development. It's based on accepted theories and models of international economic development and regional development. It includes problem variables such as urbanization and corruption common in developing nations. And if you're interested, it can still be found on Steam. I mean, I have been itching for a new city builder. (laughs) You have. And you know what? That that would do it, Dave. Maybe Aces is it. Maybe it is, and then maybe, who knows, you'll you'll do so good that you can help bring stabilization no. to the region of Korea. I think they're doing just fine without me. Well, that's up for debate, Dave. But that'll do it for this week in gaming history. So what do you got? Well, we find ourselves friends again near the beginning of all things video games. It's 1976. William Crowther develops the Colossal Cave Adventure for the PDP-10 mainframe computer, and it spreads like wildfire across the ARPANET, the precursor to the modern internet. It was also called Adventure, and it's pretty much the first known, well-known, rather, adventure game. Maybe the first known, but it's definitely the first well-known game. Many, many people have the pleasure of experiencing their own little cave adventure. Now, we've taught you about some of them in the past. In episode 155, we taught you about Adventure International. Their first game, Adventureland, was inspired by it. In episode 89, we learned all about the career of Roberta Williams, the queen of adventure games. Her first game, Mystery House, also inspired by the Colossal Cave Adventure. In fact, she developed a 3D remake of it just this last year called Colossal Cave. It's a 3D remake of the Colossal Cave Adventure. So we've kind of finally come full circle on that. Wow. We've also learned in episode 124, for, for, episode <laughs> 124 about Warren Robinick, who played Colossal Cave Adventure. And then he decided that he wanted to make a graphical version of it for the Atari 2600. And the result of that was Adventure for the Atari 2600, which, among other things, gave us the very first well-known Easter egg might be the first Easter egg hidden in the game. 
There is still one game, however, that is arguably more influential than all of those that we've never talked about. And that's why we're here today. So Tim Anderson, Mark Blank, and Bruce Daniels, they were all students at MIT, members of what's known as the Dynamic Modeling Group, which was a computer science research division at the school. Dave Liebling worked as a research staff member, also in the Dynamic Modeling Group. All of them but Blank were in some capacity writing software for DARPA. That's the defense, what, defense and research something agency. Isn't that the precursor to like the CIA nowadays or something like that? Uh, I thought DARPA was just the start or maybe it was its still own thing. Yeah, DARPA's probably still around. Yeah, anyway, the, the DARPA did all research projects agency. There you go. DARPA did all the early military technology and everything. DARPA, for all of our purposes, we've talked about it before. That's where the ARPANET and the internet came from. DARPA was one of the collaborators, along with a bunch of research institutions, which were mostly colleges. So, anyway, so. These guys are all part of the dynamic modeling group. They're writing software for DARPA. Because of this, they have they all have access to the mainframe. And of course, the mainframe was where Colossal Cave Adventure was found after its creation. So there's no doubt that these guys were among the you know small group of people who had an opportunity to play it once it was created. You know, they worked together as a team to solve all the puzzles in it. It said that they spent considerable hours playing through Colossal Cave Adventure. But as they played it, they found themselves becoming increasingly frustrated with Adventure's simple text parser. Now, we've if you don't know what a text parser is, we've talked about that before. It's basically, in a text adventure, how you communicate with the game, right? So you want to move left, move left, like, you know, text parser is where you type move left. The game would recognize that as moving left and move. That's what the text parser is. It's basically the way you talk with the program. And Adventure, or Colossal Cave Adventure's text parser, was very, very simple. I mean, it was one of the earliest adventure games. That's no surprise. But the team here at the Dynamic Modeling Group, they felt that they could do better. They were working on the mainframe. They had their own programming language on the mainframe. It was called MDL, which is the Model Development Language. And they felt that it was better suited for creating a text parser that could process more complex text inputs. Colossal Cave Adventure was developed on an earlier programming language called Fortran, one of the granddaddies of all programming languages. MDL, they felt, was just more complex and better suited for for you know doing more than move left they wanted it, you to be able to talk to it in more complex sentences basically in an article written in computer gazette issue four it was noted that because the game adventure would only accept two word commands that the computer made some decisions that would have made the game more challenging had they been left up to the player so for example you can enter the command open door and if there was more than one door near you the computer would decide which one you meant. So just a real simple example on on how they felt it was limited and and could advance more in the game. So they decided as a team that they were going to build upon their own experience that they already had creating video games and design something new. 
So Dave Liebling had been involved with the development of a game in 1973 called Maze. Now, Maze was the very first 3D multiplayer first-person shooter Maze game. It was originally created by a group of guys at a NASA research center where you could basically chase each other down in a maze and shoot each other between two computers that were connected together. One of the original developers on Maze began taking classes later on at MIT, and he brought Maze with him. He ended up becoming friends or partners with Dave Liebling, and they took the original Maze and they expanded it from a computer-to-computer two-person game into an eight-person shootout while adding some other quality of life improvements like they added the ability to do scoring they added a level editor we've briefly touched on maze before it pretty much represents what is probably the earliest example of a first person shooter that we know of Uh, and because of that a lot of those other features are first too, like the first level editor it had an observer mode so it's got the first observer mode first radar is built into the game the first avatars that we've ever seen in the video game maze is just 1973 is so early that just everything that was made then represents a lot of first so that's a, a important game for that reason it's not talked about more you know colossal cave adventure is a few years later and it's talked about a lot because maze never really left the mainframe network you know, so it, it never gained the popularity like Adventure did. So it's not nearly as impactful on modern gaming, um, and, and so it doesn't come up as much. But Liebling made it. He had experience with Maze, and, and so that's where his experience comes from. On the other hand, Mark Blank and Tim Anderson, they both worked on a game called Trivia, which was a mainframe game made on that, that PDP there in 1976. Rob, you can kind of guess what trivia is about, right? I'm going to guess it's a racing game. Yeah, definitely a racing game. One of the earliest racing games. I'm, I'm proud of you for getting that. Hell yeah. So they took their idea, their ideas, you know, to, to improve upon the, the framework of what Colossal Cave Adventure had made. And they wanted to make something better. Liebling got the party started. He started making his own little two-word text parser for instructions. Anderson and Blank collectively proved that it was useful by building a small prototype text game around it. And then Liebling went on vacation. (laughs) So, you know, got the job done and we're out. While Liebling was gone, all the other remaining members of the team, they designed an adventure game concept. They sat down, write it, mapped it out, did all the fun stuff. And that version that they kind of came up with there was refined and evolved into the first version of Zork. At this point, though, they hadn't actually decided on a name for a new adventure game. So in the MIT community, they often used nonsensical words for programs in development. So I found some early articles that described words that they use like foo and bar. They also use bletch, gritch, grotch, mumble, and frots. So one of the other words that they used was zork. In an Infocom publication called the New Zork Times, Tim Anderson wrote this series of articles. They were called the History of Zork. Specifically, we're looking at the first in a series. In it, he wrote, <clears throat> Zork, by the way, was never really named. 
Zork was a nonsense word floating around. It was usually a verb, as in Zork the Fweep, and may have been derived from another, which is Zorch. We tended to name our programs with the word Zork until they were ready to be installed in the system. Interesting way to come up with that. There, well, I mean, it never it, it didn't mean anything, and then obviously they never changed it. So they just, you know, they they use nonsense to denote a program that wasn't ready for the world yet. They oopsied into the name. They oopsied into the name. So Liebling comes back from vacation and takes the feedback, continues to improve on his text parser, and you know writes other part of the software. In later interviews, he notes that the game's combat is based on Dungeons and & Dragons, and that he thought of the text parser and its responses as taking on the role of a dungeon master from a D&D game. And this is the concept that he used to guide his continued development of the parser. So the team continues to develop the game. It makes updates to it on the mainframe itself, and they test it as they're doing updates. Now, this was 1977 or so, and the Dynamic Modeling Group already had a little fan base at the time, thanks to Blank and Anderson's earlier game, Trivia. By this point, though, Trivia was kind of dead, and so periodically, people would log into the mainframe to see what the group was up to. Did they update Trivia? Are the, or is anyone playing? Are they making something new? You know, this is the early, 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 early internet. So there's no such thing as security, privacy. There's nothing like that. You programmed on the mainframe. You saved to the mainframe. You played off the mainframe. And everyone who was logged into the mainframe network had access to whatever you were doing. People could actually snoop in on your console. There was a there was a, a, a basically a peak. What's, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh backdoor? No, it wasn't a backdoor because it was right. But there was a like you could run the command peak command. There was basically a peak command where they could look at what you were doing on your console. So people began to snoop and they noticed that someone, you know, various members of this team were running this program called Zork. And as they pried into what Zork was, whether or not by snooping in on the console or like digging into the software and running it themselves, they could clearly see that it was an adventure type game, right? I mean, they also had access to its code, you know, because of the way this all made. So they, they could see what was going on. So it didn't take much effort from that point to figure out how to start it up when it was available. So at first, it was people who were familiar with the work of this group, the trivia fans. And then as word got out, it spread to other users of the ARPANET that there was this there was this really interesting adventure game that was being created. From nearly the beginning of development, there was a room. It was the living room of of like early in the game. And it contained on the floor a copy of something called the U.S. News and Dungeon Report. And when you read that newspaper, it described all the recent changes in the game. So they had built patch notes. This is basically one of the first times that we ever see patch notes being like distributed to the player base. 1977, which is crazy to think about because it's just like common today, you know? Yeah, that's that is crazy when you think of it. All of these changes were credited 
to some group of implementers they called themselves. That's what the group called themselves at this point. So the world of Zork was being changed by implementers. That was how they, they fashioned it. And Zork spread and it spread and it spread. You know, the team made attempts to protect their game as new computers came out, as new technology came out. Every time they did it, though, someone would manage how to, you know, to figure out how to bypass their protection. Even at one point, you know, it got worked to other languages. The someone at one point stole their source code and they rewrote the entire thing in Fortran, which they said was amazing because it was never meant to be written on a, a more basic programming language. But someone figured it out. But the the point is, is that the community, like by what they were doing and the U.S. News and Dungeon Report, they learned that there was a benefit to what they were doing. They contributed to the game. Players of the early version of Zork would send the team bug reports, would send the team fan mail, would send the team suggestions for new problems and puzzles. And as this work and this basically worked out to the team's benefit. At one point, the implementers were just kind of running out of ideas and they needed sometimes they needed help refining the ones that they already had. So Tim Anderson, in his History of Zork articles, he recalled one story in which the team had just announced the addition of a treasure in the game, which was the jewel-encrusted egg. And a few days after said announcement, one of Liebling's friends is talking to him on the phone, and he basically says, hey, I've gotten the egg open, but I assume you losers have some nonsense cooked up where you do something with the canary and the songbird. At the time, they had nothing. It was just an egg you could open with jewels that you could sell, you know, for money. And a Dave, of course, in response to that, responded, <coughs> of course we do. Then the team went off and refined the puzzle to include a concept that surrounds the canary and the songbird. And of course, that's a clockwork canary. And what they did is, if you're curious, when you wind it up in a very specific location, a songbird comes by and drops you a brass bauble which was like the whole point of the game is to collect all the treasures of Zork. And you got credit for collecting the egg. And then if you if you did this where the songboard dropped the brass bauble, you would get one of the other treasures, which was the brass bauble. So it was the only way to get both of them. The canary and the songbird. Neat little concept there. There were many concepts added to the game in that fashion. They planned very little of the game ahead of time. And to further that, most of the game's aspects weren't even specific to one developer. Whenever one of the developers had an idea they liked, that developer would add it to the game, develop the concept, and write the text to go along with it. Uh, and and that was that was that. They would attach it onto the pre-existing game. So a bunch of people just created their own thing, added it to a game, and made it work. Essentially, in the beginning, that's one hundred percent how they did it. Yes, that's fantastic. And it was kind of in that way through creation and iteration that the team continued to add on the Zork. You know, they they started developing it in May of 1977. It's given a 1977 release date because this early version existed on a mainframe and was played by many, many people. But the team continued to update the game for quite a while longer after that. The last puzzle of the, the game that we know today wasn't actually added until February of 1979. And the team continued to release bug fixes for 
that version of Zork until January of 1981. They probably would have kept going, to be fair, but by then, the team had hit the one megabyte memory allocation that they were they were allowed to hit. Like That was the memory limitation of those machines, was one megabyte. So by January of 1981, they hit their one megabyte memory allocation that they had, and that was it. For all purposes, they had finally wrapped up collaboration on their own text adventure. And speaking of collaboration, have you ever considered creating your own podcast but just don't know where to start? Well, look no further than the all-in-one podcasting suite of tools offered by our friends at Zencaster. With Zencaster, it's super easy to record a podcast. Everyone logs in using their web browser, and you just start recording a high-quality podcast right away. It allows you to record up to 4K videos with your guests, and with Zencaster's multi-layered backups, you always have the highest quality recordings, even if your connection is unstable. And with Zencaster, you never have to worry about what you sound like. Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and as and as and removes all those awkward pauses in conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and reduce background noise. You can do all of this with the single click of a button. And if the thought of podcasting overwhelms you because you think you need tons of different tools and services, you can relax because those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute it to major destinations. So if you'd like to start your own podcast or maybe you want to take your current podcast to the next level, we've got a deal for you. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use the code memory card lane and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. Sign up for Zencaster today and you can experience the same ease in producing your own high quality podcast as we do each week. So go out and share your ideas with the world. Well, the team that created Zork, they knew that there were other ideas out there that they could work on. In 1979, Anderson, Blank, Liebling, and five other members of the Dynamic Modeling Group incorporated a company called Infocom as a company for members to join after leaving MIT. In truth, they started out with no projects in mind per se. None of them were even paid employees starting out. They, they just knew that there were other things they would want to do, and so they incorporated a company for everyone like, hey, after you graduate, you know, club members, come join Infocom. So, so Blank and another programmer named Joel Berez came up with a plan to make Zork work on personal microcomputers, which were just becoming popular. Compared to a mainframe computer, however, personal computers had very low, little memory. So to put this concept into perspective, let's talk about the Commodore 64. That megabyte that the team stopped at is 1,024 kilobytes, right? The Commodore 64 is named because it has 64 kilobytes of memory, and even that wasn't available to games. 15, 15 kilobytes were taken up by its operating system, so if you were making a game and hoping to play it in its entirety of, on the Commodore itself, you had 39 kilobytes of space to work with. That's a far cry from 1,024. Right. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. A little bit of a difference. 
Now, this problem was solved in the case of Zork and other games by breaking the game up onto external storage. So the whole game, 1,024 kilobytes, doesn't get loaded into the machine at one time. You know, they put the entire game on a number of floppy disks, and they bring it in and out in bits and pieces. You know, you bring 37 kilobytes, give yourself a little bit extra space, you know, you, you load this in, you you pull this, you know, it's a single scene. When you're done with that scene, it removes that from memory, loads the next scene in, so it does it in bits and pieces. You know, you could store the entirety of the game on floppy disks and just bring it into the computer 30-some kilobytes at a time. Specifically in the case of Zork, Blank and Berez felt that they'd be able to bring Zork to microcomputers if they used floppy disks, and they split the game itself into two pieces. So the pair works in the game throughout the summer and fall of 1979. Like I said, they're they're unpaid at this point. Infocom only had the funds to purchase the computers. They couldn't afford to pay they couldn't afford to pay their employees in any way shape or form. And they ported the game over to what they called Zork Implementation Language or ZIL, which would then be run on something called the Z machine. So the Z machine was basically a virtual machine that would interpret the ZIL, the ZIL language, for whatever computer was run on. So for each type of microcomputer that they wanted to release Zork on, they only had to write a new Z machine specific to that microcomputing platform. You know, they could they could write the game in the ZIL language once and then just plug it into the, the interpreter for the Commodore or the Amiga which was genius, absolute genius nice. of them. They, it, it let the, it, it let them basically port it to everything, you know? Yeah, no, it makes it easy. They stuck to the plan and labeling divided Zork in half to create two standalone episodes. And while doing so, he modified some of the game's layout to improve its flow and f- fix the disconnection that incurred when they split the content up. So kind of a couple things to note there. When you're just letting programmers like do their own thing and add on to the game, it doesn't have a coherent layout, right? Like there were parts of the game that didn't make sense why they were next to one like each other in the original version. But when they had a chance to like step back and redesign it, they kind of fixed some of that. And then of course they had to split it into like they split it into two games basically. And so that meant that like they had to remap it for that too. So by the end of 1979, Barris had been elected company president, Joel Barres, and they were wrapping up development on the first episode, which was going to be released as Zork, The Great Underground Empire Part 1. With the end in sight, they start looking for a publisher. Barres approaches Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft declines. They had just released their own take on the Colossal Cave Adventure, which is a program called Microsoft Adventure. As it turns out, Microsoft CEO Bill Gates was a fan of Zork, but unfortunately, as the story goes, by the time he heard of the proposal, Infocom was already deep into the negotiations with another company, Personal Software. Um, And Personal Software, we've never really talked about, is one of the first professional software publishing companies. Personal and Infocom come to an agreement. Personal Software agrees to publish the game, which is going to be released as Zork, the Great Underground Empire. Specifically, they want, they're going to release a version for the TRS-80 in December of 1980. We now call that version simply Zork-1. By the end of 1980, they were working on converting the second half of the game into what's now known as Zork-2. Um, but while doing so, Dave Liebling thought of several new puzzles for the game. Soon, 
it was clear that what they were working on, what was left, was not going to fit into all the allotted space for the next game. So what was left was then split into two parts. And these became Zork 2, the Wizard of Frobaz, and Zork 3, the Dungeon Master. So they offer Zork 2 to personal software, and they sign a contract with them to publish it, like the first one. But the relationship was kind of rocky, and like as they were going on, Infocom felt that their relationship just it wasn't what they had hoped it would be. Infocom felt that personal software just was... They weren't advertising Zork very well. They didn't seem to be thrilled that the idea of Zork 2 was now Zork 2 and Zork 3. <coughs> and as Infocom tried to show them future games that they were planning on develop, because once they had that that language down and comported to everything, the development process kind of changed. It was easier to create games and implement them and get them out everywhere. Personal software just didn't show any interest in any of the other games that Infocom was pitching them, you know? As it turns out, personal software was just about finished with entertainment software. They had developed a spreadsheet software called VisiCalc, which ended up being more popular than all of their entertainment software, so they basically ditched publishing games altogether and they rebranded themselves as a company called VisiCorp to focus on business software. Infocom at that point <coughs> decided not to look for another publisher. Instead, they took the steps to start self-publishing their own games. Ooh, bold move there, Cotton. That's it. So by the end of 1981, they were self-publishing Zork 1 and Zork 2. And in the fall of 1982, Zork 3 had followed. Now, just to give you an idea on how popular Zork was for Infocom, Zork 1 sold 380,000 copies by 1986. The entire trilogy overall, including the first game, sold 680,000 copies. And at the time, as a company, Infocom's overall unit sales were about 2 million units. So Zork alone accounted for more than one-third of their entire catalog of sales. Damn, that's impressive. I mean, 380,000 copies is impressive for an 80s, like an early 80s game, you know? Oh, 100% it is. That's impressive numbers still, honestly. There are indie developers that would die for that kind of number. Hell yeah, there are. So Infocom as a company was for a while the dominant computer game company. In December of 1983, all 10 of its published games were on SoftCell's top 40 list of best-selling computer games. A year later, in 1984, the book publisher, Simon & Schuster, was trying to break into other forms of media at the time, and it offered Infocom $28 million to join them. At the time, they were valued $10 to $12 million at best. But they were riding high. The sky was the limit, and they turned down the offer. Dun, dun, dun. What? 
You see, while Infocom was growing on the entertainment side of the software business, they were watching other graduates of MIT produce successful business software. Lotus Development, who released Lotus 123, which was a very popular spreadsheet program, more popular than BusyCalc ever was, they released Lotus 123 in January of 1983. And Lotus and Infocom shared a building, so they they both kind of played off of each other's success. They weren't the same company, but they were all they all knew one each other as MIT graduates, and you know they 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 talked right. So they're seeing Lotus do very well, and money is rolling in for Lotus on the business side of things. So Infocom makes a decision. To take all this money that they have rolling in from from Zork, and they opened up a business division with it, hoping to capitalize on some similar success. In 1985, they released a project called Cornerstone, which was a database program that was geared towards small businesses. Now, Cornerstone was a good program for all purposes. It reviewed incredibly well, but it only sold 10,000 copies which was not even enough to cover the cost of developing it. One of the problems with Corner Zone was that old habits die hard, frankly. Corner Zone was developed on their virtual machine concept, the Z-Machine, but it was only made available for IBM PCs. Now, when we're talking about database software, operating it through a virtual machine made it slow. And... Because it was slower, it was seen as less impressive than any pretty much similar program that was natively written for IBM computers, right? Because you want your programs to be responsive. Do you? Nah, you're right. You don't want it at all. So yeah, also it was like $500, which was a lot of money for a piece of software in 1980-something. 85? 85. Yeah, so you know they, they couldn't get Cornerstone off the ground. Low sales on Cornerstone was really problematic for Infocom because they had sunk a lot of money into developing it, money that they couldn't recuperate, and sales of their text adventures were starting to slow down by this point. By 1982, the video game market was moving on to graphic adventures. The game designers at Infocom, they were not thrilled with providing graphics the business and marketing departments at Infocom, though, they recognized the necessity to evolve with the market. So Infocom did start to negotiate with other companies. They negotiated with a company called Penguin Software to produce artwork for games. But that partnership never materialized because, again, Infocom could not relinquish the Z machine. They were so set on the virtual machine concept and it was determined that it was just going to be prohibitively difficult to add graphics to the Z machine concept. And so that relationship with Penguin Software to do art for them never materialized. So instead, in a stroke of genius, actually, Infocom began releasing a series of advertisements that mocked graphical games as graffiti when compared to the human imagination. So this campaign ended up being incredibly successful. But the result 
wasn't didn't it didn't fall in their favor the way they helped it would. I mean, don't get me wrong, people started looking down on graphic text adventures a little bit and it and it helped it helped normal text adventures maintain their popularity for longer. But the offshoot to that was that it led other companies that weren't already in text adventures like Broderbund and Electronic Arts to start releasing text games for a short period of time. And the marketing campaign because of that wasn't popular enough to pull Infocom out of the financial hole it dug itself in when Cornerstone failed. So shortly afterwards, they ended up having to lay off about half of their 100 employees. And even that didn't leave the company in a stable position. So they're digging and clawing, but right now nothing is working to bring Infocom from the brink of bankruptcy. On June 13, 1986, Activision steps in, and they end up acquiring the company for $7.5 million. Think about that. A few years earlier, Simon & Schuster offered them $28 million, and now they're bought out for $7.5. Yeah, that that kind of hurts. Nah, yeah, it doesn't get any better. Damn. This merger was pushed by their CEO, Jim Levy, who was an Infocom fan, and he felt that the two companies, Activision and Infocom, would mutually benefit from the merger. Infocom, we know it wasn't doing well. Activision financially was on shaky ground. They obviously had more money than Infocom, but they weren't they weren't swimming in it at the time, not the way we know Activision. They saw the potential in utilizing Activision's experience with graphics and merging that with Infocom's parser and excellent storytelling skills. Because by now, Infocom had dozens of titles underneath them, and they were really known for great text adventures. Soon after this merger happened, though, Jim Levy was asked to step, step down as CEO, and he was replaced by a man named Bruce Davis. Now, Bruce Davis from the get-go was very vocal. He believed that Activision paid too much for Infocom. And for starters, in, 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 like to correct it, he initiated a lawsuit against Infocom <laughs> to help them recoup some of the cost. Really? Really, a company that your company owns, you can. Yep. I mean, I guess if they're technically different legal entities, but I mean, come on, you know what their financial statement is like. Yeah, they don't have money to give you. And with what other control he had over the situation, he began to make changes to the way that Infocom was run. So he did have some control. So, for example. Davis required that they use Activision's packaging plant instead of their own in-house one. That raised the cost of each package from about $0.45 cents to over $0.90. Cents. In addition, the Activision plant was notorious for making mistakes in packaging, whereas the Infocom one almost never did. We know that in hindsight as collectors now. Oh, do we? We do. Infocom marketed their games in a way that kept them in store inventories for years. Because of this, older tiles would continue to sell. And when a new title came out, you would actually see a small boost in the old games because people would come by the new games and, it, you know, and oh, I remember this or oh, I've never played this. And they would buy one of the old titles, too. Activision, on the other hand, constantly replaced their old inventory with new inventory. 
it made sense with the style of their games because they were graphically based, but with Infocom's text-based adventures, new games don't have newer text. So he changed Infocom's sales strategy, and he basically cut off a long-running source of income for the company by getting rid of the old inventory in stores. Wow. And speaking of graphics, he pushed the company really, really hard to release graphic games. They ended up releasing one called Fublitsky, and it failed miserably. Uh, what's Fublitz- Fublitsky there, Dave? I have no clue. Sounds like foosball. That's it. I'm weird. I don't know. Davis required Infocom, which normally only produced four titles a year, to double its output to eight titles a year. We know how well Russian games has worked out historically for studios. Oh, so well. And from the financial aspect, like as part of the results of all of that, the cost of acquiring the company was actually charged back to Infocom or amortized. Yeah, okay. It was charged back to the company over the next several years, which significantly reduced their operating revenue. Wow. So he charged he charged the cost of, of of Activision buying them out back to the company's bottom line, back to Infocom's bottom line. After also suing that this dude really wanted it to fail. This dude was awful. By 1988, the relationship, as you can imagine, between Infocom and Activision was super poor. And that's probably giving it credit. Infocom employees believed that they were being sabotaged. They believed that Activision was purposely giving them poor quality games to work on. And by 1989, all of these changes and problems came to a head. They had rising costs, falling profits. They had, by this point, gained a reputation for some really poor quality games that were riddled with technical issues. And because of all that, Davis finally got what he wanted, and Infocom was closed in 1989. Employees of Infocom moved on to other endeavors. We'll wrap back around to that in a moment. But the truth is, Activision itself was not doing well either. Davis hadn't done the company any service as CEO. It had tried to produce business software as well and failed. That seems to be a common theme in this story. And so Activision was buried in debt. They tried to rebrand themselves as a company called Mediagenic for a year or two. But this didn't do anything to pad the bottom line. And... Coming into the early 90s, Activision was uh, like, you know, struggling, failing, so on and so forth. So in 1991, Bobby Kotick, who literally just left, left Activision last last month, 20, December 31st, 2023, which is last day at Activision Blizzard. He left. You'll have to Google the reasons. Um, but in 1991, Bobby Kotick purchases Mediagenic. To his credit, Kotick saw value in the Activision name, so he revived it. He saw value in the Infocom name and the way that Infocom did business. So the Zork games were all bundled together, and they were released in compilations. They are called the Lost Treasures of Infocom. 
And because of it, we saw the Zork games have a little bit of resurgence from time to time. They've continued to be released in compilations on various platforms in various compilations over the years. And then Activision, with Kotick's blessing, and Kotick you know, pushed for this, Activision would actually revisit the world of Zork um, with a few graphic adventure games. In 1993, they released Return to Zork. Zork Nemesis, the, the Forbidden Lands, was released in 1996. And Zork Grand Inquisitor was released in 1997. Uh, two of the old implementers, actually, Mike Berlin and Mark Blank, actually wrote a new Zork text adventure that was called Zork the Undergr- Undiscovered Underground in 1997 alongside Grand Inquisitor as part of its ad campaign. Hmm. Neat. So let's talk about the careers of those original implementers. I'll keep it as short as I can because, you know, we're time, always time. There are likely just as many games that cite Zork as an inspiration as those that cite the Colossal Cave adventure as an inspiration. So the reach of these guys and Zork, it, it, it's a very significant, very significant impact that they've had. But they haven't all worked in, the, in gaming the whole time. So Tim Anderson has held a variety of positions in the defense and business sectors after Infocom shut down. He got involved with local politics at some point, but he kind of stayed on the video game radar, um, working on little things here and there, or stayed off the video game radar. However, you know, he stayed in defense and business. He didn't work on games. That's what I meant to say. Just kind of, you know, fell, fell off of that. Bruce Daniels has worked for many companies since Infocom. His, his uh, resume includes Hewlett Packard, Apple, Oracle, Borland, and Sun Microsystems. He ended up at some point earning a PhD and becoming a hydroclimatologist. He specializes in the water-related impacts of climate change. Uh, He has served in local water districts and California's Water Quality Control Board. Kind of an interesting career change there. A little bit, I'd say. Hydroclimatologist. That's a cool... That's a cool... It's definitely a cool name, but... uh... It feels like it's just a hodgepodge of different things that became its own thing, which I guess is a lot of jobs when you think about it. So Mark Blank ended up founding a company called Blank Berlin, obviously with Michael Berlin and company in 1993. Um, Without going too much into their history, they ended up eventually renaming themselves Eidetic, which made, among other things, the Siphon Filter series and Bubsy 3D. Sony ended up buying Eidetic in 2000, which still exists today, actually. The last well-known game that Eidetic made was Days Gone. I don't know if you ever have a chance to play Days Gone for the PlayStation. Nice little zombie nope. game. It's Did good not. Game. Good game. Underrated, in my opinion. Blank ended up leaving Sony in 2004, and he has since worked for Palm, Google, he worked in Amazon's Lab 126, so he's continued to work as an industry programmer for other companies. Dave Liebling stayed at Infocom until the bitter end and then has worked for a number of other companies. In 2014, he gave a post-mortem talk on Zork in which he gave his current title 
as Senior Principal Software Engineer at BAE Systems. So he too has remained an industry software engineer. So really, none of them stayed in video games, but they all stayed in programming, which is kind of interesting. For the most part, they stayed in programming, except for the hydroclimatologist. <laughs> I mean, who knows, Dave? They might have to do a lot of programming yeah. too. Very, very true. He probably does have to he probably does use computers to program like climate change models. So I wouldn't I would not be surprised whatsoever. So but yeah. I am Zork. You want to know? We'll get into it in a second. So we'll get into it in one second. But that's pretty much the history of Zork, Rob. It's the history of a very interesting game. There are a lot of games that we talked about, a lot of other episodes that we talked about, you know, the Roberta Williams episode and the Ward Robinet episode. All these other episodes that are attached to Colossal Cave Adventure like this one. And of course, if you'd like to check out any of these other episodes, you can do so by going to our website, which is www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can people find on our website? Well, Dave, you can find a calendar of our future episodes. You can find a link to our Discord where you can come talk with Dave and I. You can find a link to our Patreon where you can help support Dave and I and have access to ad-free and unedited versions of our episodes. And you can find links to our social media where I can be found on several platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and Dave. I can be found on various platforms as David is wrong each week. We tell you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. With doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the world, what, about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. And I just can't get things right tonight, dude. No, you cannot. I know. One of the best things about doing this podcast is that as we sit down every week to prepare for these episodes we always learn things because when you research stories you're bound to find things that you didn't know and then we get to sit down and we get to teach you things and while we teach so while we teach things we learn things it's a great cycle so in celebration and recognition of that cycle every week we like to talk about what we've learned every week so rob what did you learn today well dave i think my big takeaway is that there were patch and game updates this far back that's that yeah it's mind-blowing like we all know it's with anyone who games nowadays it's so commonplace but i mean we're talking the late 70s that this started to me that wasn't even a common thing with playstation 2 games you would get the disc and it seemed like that was it unless you were doing some online stuff but it didn't seem like it was till the ps3 xbox 360 generation that it really started taking off with these constant patches and things from what I knew. So it's just crazy to think that it's been going on since the seventies. I, you kind of stole my thunder because that's my favorite part of the story by far. I, it really got me thinking and I started to put puzzles together, like not puzzles, but I started to put the pieces together to tell a bigger story. I kind of think I might outline this as a, article or a book but we gripe nowadays about the concept of early access and all these studios that are using their communities to build their games but this is one of the earliest games out there 
And that's exactly what they did, right? Yeah. Like Maze, we talked about 1973. It barely gets earlier than that. Like there was a two-person version, and then when Maze jumped shop to MIT, someone at MIT took it and rewrote it as an eight-person version, and now they all have credit as the creators. You know, you have trivia and you have Zork. I mean, Zork here, the community literally built this game. Like it is it I the overall idea that I see more clearly than ever, I think, thanks to this story, is that the the players have been shaping games for as long as there's been a video game industry. It's just that simple. They they've been they've been they've been part of the process since the very beginning. And there never has been a us versus them. We've we've always shaped the process. And I believe that now stronger than ever seeing it this early on. So I'm with you. The fact that there were patch notes and patches and bugs given by members of the community over the network. I think it was just so cool to learn that it happened here in the late seventies too. So I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in with you, Rob. You got it. Yeah, Dave. It's just, it's crazy. Very, very crazy. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Sure. We'll go with that. You ever tripped on Zork before? No, cannot say I have, Dave. This is all new to me. We had them. I think we had them on the Atari PC that we had. I don't think we had them on the Commodore, but I've definitely played the Zork games before. I never finished them. I mean, I was baby at the time, you know, so. Yeah, or one of the earliest examples of a text adventure next to Colossal Cave Adventure, of course, but. And then there's just so many people that played the both of them that just their ideas, what they started here, just trickle throughout the industry. So. All right, Rob. Well, before I look ahead to next week, is there anything else that you'd like to add to today's episode? As always, Dave, I do want to take one quick moment to say thank you so much to all of our listeners. It means the world to us that you join us for these episodes and take a little time out of your day to learn about video games. So hope you keep on listening and just know we appreciate you being here. Yes, indeed. All right, text-based trailblazers. We've navigated the dark and winding corridors and we unraveled the enigmatic puzzles found in the great underground empire today. But every great adventure must come to an end. Next week, we'll be swapping out enchanted swords and jeweled eggs for laser cannons and intergalactic battles. Prepare yourself for Blastoff as we get ready to explore the history of one of the most iconic arcade cabinets of all time, Defender, and we'll take a look at the history of its creator, Eugene Jarvis. So buckle yourselves in for a high-flying adventure as we get ready to defend the galaxy one quarter at a time on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. do 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 do